Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, You three, come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. And then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent. And he called Aaron and Miriam. And when they had both come forward, he said, Hear now my words. Is there, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so, my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my household. When I speak with him, I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? So the anger of the Lord burned against them. And he departed. But when the cloud had withdrawn from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, as white as snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam. Behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, I beg you, do not account this sin to us, in which we have acted foolishly, and in which we have sinned. Oh, do not let her be like one of the dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. And Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, Oh God, heal her, I pray. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not bear her shame for seven days? Let her be shut up for seven days outside the camp, and afterward she may be received again. So Miriam was shut up outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on until Miriam was received again. Afterward, however, the people moved out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. And Jesus, we again pray that you would teach us your word. That you would show us yourself. That in your word we would see you, Lord Jesus. For we look for you. We look for every hint that you might be around. We seek to find you, to know you, to understand you better. For Lord, we recognize that you are the reason for our faith. God, bless the study of your word this morning. May we see Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, a few of you are looking at me and saying, didn't we do this last week? I thought we just studied Numbers chapter 12. I realize that. We studied it and we focused on the practical. We looked at the envy of Aaron and Miriam toward Moses and how we deal with envy. And I want to remind you, if you're envious or maybe you're not sure, maybe you've got a relationship that's a little sour and you want to test whether or not you have a problem with envy, Romans chapter 12 verse 15 is a great test for that. Where Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And if you find yourself rejoicing when someone is weeping or weeping when someone is rejoicing, chances are good you have an envy problem. If you can rejoice with those who rejoice, if you can be glad of others' happiness. Yesterday we went to the Skagit Valley Home Show which was just a, a, a mega home show. I mean, you can even imagine. It's just amazing. All that they had... No, it wasn't even close. It was somewhat podunk. But we walked into this <laughs> barn. 
been to a barn, and, and every year, and I probably shouldn't tell you this because I'm going to blow the secret, but every year they have cast off doors and cabinets and trim and things like that, the, the stuff that doesn't work for builders, stuff that maybe a builder will purchase for a house and, and realize it's the wrong side or the door is cut wrong or whatever. And they just put it all in this barn, stack it all up, and you can get incredible deals. Well, we walked in there, and Cheryl and I were looking for some French doors we're thinking of put, putting in our house downstairs, and we're there with Russ and Kathy, and Jeff D'Angelo was with us. And we're all looking for our stuff. Well, they went in the door and made a beeline for these pine doors. Solid pine. And like, like enough for an entire house. Just lined up against the wall. And Wes has got his little tape that says, Pittus, no other, you know. And he's sticking it on every door. You know, he's running down there. And he gets it all done. And it was awesome. And it was a great find. It was the find of the day. And everybody else in there kept going up to those doors and going, Pittus. <sighs> Here, you know, walking up. And we're guarding the doors to make sure nobody gets them. They get them all loaded up in the truck. And uh, Russ comes out. <laughs> you didn't know you were going to be an example this morning. Russ comes out and he felt terrible. Because I didn't find a stinking thing. There was nothing in there we were looking for. We thought maybe some new front doors to replace. Nothing. Nothing. It was a total waste of time, except we got to hang out with our friends. And so we're sitting there in the van, and, and Russ is getting the, the doors put up there, and Jeff's in the back seat of our van, and Jeff's like, I just, I just can't believe you guys, I mean, you hogged the doors. You got the best thing in the whole day, and what do we have? Nothing. We wasted our whole day, we're out here, and, and Russ is going, I know, man, I'm so sorry, I feel really bad. I mean, you know, you guys came out here, and I feel awful, and, and Jeff would not let him off the hook. It was great. But you know what? I couldn't have been happier. Because on my part, I'm the more spiritual between Jeff and I. Um, <laughs> we were all thrilled. You know what? It was great. It's what they needed. And, and it's a blessing for them. And hallelujah. Rejoice with those who rejoice. It was a great day. It was a great find. And I'm thrilled for them. And you need to hang on to those smaller doors because we may still yet be able to use those. Right? But it was a great day. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Are there people in your life you have trouble rejoicing with? Something good happens and you just kind of go, yeah. Or maybe something bad happens to someone and you go, oh, that's a shame. <laughs> Can you rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep? That's how you deal with envy, but that's not what we're going to talk about this morning. That was last week's study of Numbers chapter 12. This week's study of Numbers chapter 12 is a little different because beneath these layers of practical story, as is often the case in Scripture, there is a wonderful prophetic similitude of Jesus Christ. Last week we didn't really look for Jesus in the story. We just read the story and studied it and considered envy. But this week... I want you to look at it one more time before we move on and see Jesus. Why are we doing this, Rick? You might think, oh, okay, this is one of those studies. We've done these before. You know, the, the prophetic study that shows us Jesus. We saw it in Abraham and Isaac. Okay, yeah, it's obvious. The little pictures of Jesus. Why do we keep doing this over and over and over? What's the big deal? Okay, the big deal is this, as Eric said in communion, Jesus did something so that we would remember what mattered. That we would remember who we are. You cannot claim, listen to me, you cannot claim to be a Christian and not be about the person of Christ. He is the point. You're not just a religious person like so many religious people in the world. You don't just, you're not just a person of faith. 
I, that phrase really bugs me. It's just a lot in politics and in government. These people of faith. We're all people of faith. No, we're not. I am a person of Jesus Christ. My faith is in Jesus Christ. It is not in a religion. It is not in a church. It is in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And that is where our faith needs to rest. And we've got to understand that. If you walk in and out of church and you can't really say what it is about Christianity that that connects you, then you've missed it. It's Jesus. And it's always Jesus. And if we did nothing but talk about Jesus every single Sunday until He comes, again, every single day until he comes again, it would not be enough. Because he is the point. He is the centerpiece. I wish you could have been here Wednesday night. We had a great Bible study, but that's not why I wish you could have been here. I wish you could have stayed after and experienced what I experienced. Some of you got my email this week. We had a gentleman come in and visit he raised his hand, made a couple of comments during the Bible study, which you know I typically forbid. <laughs> and afterward came up to me real nice, real gentle, real peaceful. And before I knew it, I was experiencing, and I will explain this more later, a full-blown demonic attack against the name of Jesus Christ. Oh, is this one of those churches that believes in demon attacks and stuff like that? Well, this is one of these churches that teaches the Bible, (laughs) which talks about such things. And I realized in that moment, at the very beginning of this conversation, I had two choices to make here. I could just accept this little literature and say thanks a lot, and like so many of you often do with a Mormon at the front door, thank you, bye-bye, close the door as quick as possible. Or, Or I could stand up for the name of Jesus in this place, and I had a very real definite sense that that needed to happen. Not that just I should, but that it needed to happen. That even words spoken against Jesus could not be allowed to float around. But that we needed to stand up and speak the name of Christ for who He is. I want you to hear who He is this morning. And so, again, we're going to look at Numbers 12 one more time and consider, this time, Jesus. Now, again, in Numbers 12, Moses, like others before him, emerges as a type, as a picture of Jesus. While Miriam emerges as a picture of, listen to me, Judaism. Specifically, the Jews of Jesus' day. Moses, a picture of Jesus. Miriam, a picture of the Jewish people in Jesus' day. Watch this as we read. Some things you might want to jot down. I'm going to try and move through these things pretty quick. Number one, both Moses and Jesus expressed themselves as humble. Now, we mentioned this last week. But Numbers chapter 12, verse 3 says, Now the mo- man Moses, the mo man was, <laughs> the man Moses, well, I hear every little misstep, by the way, when you get a little giggle because of something I said, I've already heard it, I've moved on. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. And this is somewhat funny because he wrote that. Moses wrote it about himself. The most humble man on the face of the earth. That's who I am. And we wonder about that. And I said last week, and I just repeat it again, that he had to be humble to write something like that. Because he couldn't have gotten away with it. 600,000 plus men, not including women and children, surrounding Moses. And if he wrote something like that, and it was illegitimate, it wasn't true, (laughs) you think it would have made it? You think it would have lasted? I think the first scribe who got his hands on the, the scroll would have gone, 
<laughs> not true, not so. I remind you the Bible speaks truth. And so, Moses says he's the most humble man on the face of the earth at that time. Jesus said the following, Matthew 11, verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And this is, by the way, the only time Jesus describes his character in all of Scripture. He doesn't use words like glorious, majestic, all-powerful, the ultimate. Jesus says the following, I'm gentle and humble in heart. That's me. You want a self-description? I'll give it to you. I'm gentle, I'm humble in heart, and there you will find rest for your souls. Paul said this about Jesus, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And this is the character of Christ, absolute humility. He is more humble than anyone else. And by the way, if this is the character of Christ, guess what? It's also the nature of God. That He is humble. The only other person in all of Scripture who is called humble is Moses. Moses and Jesus. And nobody else is called humble in the Bible. Nobody else refers to themselves in that way. And so we see Moses beginning to emerge as this picture of another who would come later who was also called humble. Number two, both Moses and Jesus are evangelists. They're both evangelists. They're both both prophets of God. Numbers chapter 12, verse 6. God is speaking. He says, Hear now my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I will speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth. Now I talk to Moses even openly, not in dark sayings, and he beholds the form of the Lord. And no other prophet in all of Israel was like Moses. Not even Elijah, not Daniel, not Jeremiah or Ezekiel. None of these other prophets beheld the Lord in the way Moses did. Daniel was a great prophet, one of my favorite prophets in the scriptures, and yet Daniel dreamed dreams and had visions. And God spoke to him in dark sayings, as the Bible says, in ways that he oftentimes couldn't understand. Ways that were so intense for Daniel that he would be on his sick bed for three weeks after he got a vision. It was so overwhelming. He was just trying to understand what it was that he saw, what this horrifying thing was. Not so with Moses. Moses and God talked like friends. In fact, the Bible calls Moses friend of God. They were very close. They were both prophets of God. Jesus was the same way. The Bible says about Moses, Deuteronomy 18, 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. How like Moses? God says, I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And what did Jesus say about this? John chapter 12, verse 49. Jesus said, I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. I know. I know. Jesus King was an evangelist. He was a messenger. He was a prophet, just like Moses, in that he spoke words of God which were directly spoken to him by the Father. And so Moses gives us this early picture of Jesus. Both, both of them evangelists. Number three, 
both were encouraged by the voice from the cloud. Verse 5 tells us the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent and he called Aaron and Miriam and when they had both come forward he spoke. He came down in the cloud. Came down in the cloud and then the words which we just read are words of great encouragement to Moses. I stand by my servant Moses. I'm behind him. He's the one I've chosen, Aaron, Miriam. Not you two. I chose Moses for this position. And I imagine Moses was greatly encouraged to hear the Lord speak these words. Same thing with Jesus. The story is told, and you can read it later, Matthew chapter 17, the first eight verses. Jesus goes up on a mountain. It's a mountain somewhere in northern Israel. Most likely, in my opinion, Mount Hermon. And Jesus up on the mountain takes with him Peter, James, and John, his three best friends. Jesus had best friends? Yeah, he did. Three guys he was closer to than anybody else. And so the four of them go up on the mountain, and Jesus says, Stay here a bit while I pray. And he goes up a little bit further, and the next thing these three apostles know is he is, the Bible says, transfigured. What does that mean? It means he changed before their very eyes. It means for a moment. Peter and James and John actually saw with their own eyes, and Peter would later say this again in his letter, we saw him up on the mountain and he glowed and he was shining as bright as the day. In fact, as white as the snow, just an amazing, and they were blown away. And then beside him were Elijah and Moses standing there. Jesus and Elijah and Moses and by the way you wonder if we're going to recognize people in heaven Peter recognized Elijah and Moses and he never met them before so there is recognition there and he sees them and he's amazed and what does Peter say? he takes off his shoe takes his foot and crams it as far into his mouth as he possibly can (laughs) and he says Lord it's good for us to be here wow this is great there's Elijah and Moses and Jesus you're looking really good I've never seen you look so good how about we do this let's build three tabernacles one for each of you come on James John let's do it and a voice comes down in a cloud just like with Moses And out of the cloud, God speaks and he says, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Three words, listen to him. As opposed to who, Lord? Moses, Elijah, the two greatest prophets of Israel. And God says, no, you listen to Jesus. Why, Lord? He's different. He's the same. He's similar. There's a a type in Moses that we see. Similarities in this chapter. Both are encouraged by this voice from the cloud. But God says, no, this is my son. You listen to him. Number four, if you're jotting down these notes. Both Moses and Jesus were envied by older siblings. Both were envied by older siblings. Remember again, Miriam and Aaron, Moses' older sister and brother, have a problem and verse 2 tells us they're talking behind Moses' back and saying has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses has he not spoken through us as well they're envious of his position same exact thing with Jesus Jesus had older siblings who were envious of him and I'm not not talking about his brothers there there was a time where his brothers showed up in his ministry and they tried to take him away because they thought he was nuts they thought he was completely losing it even Mary at one point thought he might be crazy and joined in with them to try and take him away. But I'm talking about some other brothers, some other older siblings of Jesus. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, the Jewish leaders of the day. 
And they rejected Jesus. And the Bible tells us very clearly why they rejected Jesus. What's interesting is it took a Gentile pagan for us to absolutely understand why it was the Jews rejected Jesus in that day. Matthew 27 verse 18 tells us that Pilate, Pontius Pilate, knew that because of envy they had handed him over. They were envious. They didn't like the position that Jesus had. The fact that the flock was following him. That the lambs were leaving their fold and going after a different shepherd. And they were upset about that. They were envious about it. And that is why the Jewish leaders handed Jesus over to be crucified. It was envy based. Both Moses and Jesus experienced this envy from their older siblings. Interesting. Number five going on. Same kind of thought. Both Moses and Jesus engaged in Gentile marriage. They both took Gentile brides. You know that Moses did, a Cushite woman, verse 1 of chapter 12. What about Jesus? He took a Gentile bride. I'm not talking about Mary Magdalene, as is claimed in the Da Vinci Code. Which, by the way, if that book's upset you at all, it's so full of farces, it's not even funny. It's based on all kinds of mis. It's not legitimate. It's a very fascinating uh, novel. Fun. It's kind of an adventure ride. Yes, I've read it. But it's also just kind of full of all kinds of lies. It's fictional. All the way through. We'll talk about the Da Vinci Code sometime. Maybe when the movie comes out. Opening weekend or something. But who was Jesus' Gentile bride? Who's the Gentile bride we're truly talking about? You know who it is. You're looking at him. Hey Rick, you're going off Look around, you're looking at her You're looking at him You are looking at the bride of Christ in this place this morning The Gentile bride of Christ This is wonderful Jesus' message and his gospel spread out He came to Israel first To the Jewish people first But the message spread out And it galled the Jews of his day It it so upset them It sent them into this spiraling down into envy Matthew chapter 12 verse 16 says Many followed him and he healed them all And he warned them not to tell who he was Now listen closely Matthew says This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet And he begins to quote Behold my servant whom I have chosen My beloved in whom my soul is well pleased I will put my spirit upon him And he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles That's Old Testament stuff He will not quarrel nor will he cry out Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets A battered reed he will not break off A smoldering wick he will not put out Until he leads justice to victory And in his name the Gentiles will hope In his name the Gentiles will hope. All these years of waiting for the Jewish Messiah and even the Old Testament scriptures proclaim that in this Jewish Messiah's name Gentiles will find their hope. All part of God's fantastic masterful plan that we would actually be bride to Jesus. Revelation 19 verse 7 which is the wonderful picture of the marriage feast of the Lamb says let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. And in fact even today there are many Jews who are scandalized by this. Who are bothered by this. That Jesus would go out to and among the Gentiles and even today it's interesting there are many Jewish people who would even reject the Jewishness of Jesus. Not even recognizing that he himself was born and raised a Jew in Israel. That that was Jesus' earthly heritage. 
He came from the Galilee or the Galil, and that was part of the problem. The Galil literally meant the region. It was the region of the Gentiles, and this is where Jesus was born and raised, in Nazareth, in a strongly Gentile region. And as he came out of that, the Jews in Jerusalem were saying, Come on, a Messiah from the Galil? I don't think so. By the way, did you know that Israeli children today are taught never to say Jesus, Yeshu, because it's a curse word. Interesting how Satan works. That what Peter referred to as the only name under heaven, that has been given among men by which we must be saved, is a curse word to the very people through whom Jesus came. Yeshua. In fact, religious statistics in Israel are stunning. Approximately 60% are non-religious or New Age in the nation of Israel today. 25% are traditional Orthodox. Another 15% are ultra-Orthodox. And all of these include, you may have heard of this, Kabbalah mysticism. Kind of mixed in. Even the ultra-Orthodox. And any Israeli who declares Jesus as Messiah is by law not recognized as Jewish any longer. And that's today. By the way, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ to anyone under 18 in Israel is viewed as conversion by coercion and it's against the law. In the same way that Miriam was scandalized by Moses' marriage to a Cushite woman, a Gentile, and it drove her to envy, it drove the Jewish people to envy that Jesus would give his message out beyond the boundaries of Judaism to the Gentile world as well. And Paul declares something wonderful, that God will use Jewish envy, listen to this, this is so cool, he will use Jewish envy to bring Jewish people back to Jesus. But that's how it works. God had this all worked out. He knows the heart of man. He knows how to make it work. Romans 11, verse 11, Paul says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has now come to the Gentiles. Why? To make them jealous. Now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? God will save all of Israel, is, as Paul says, and, and that's, that's another message for another time. What do you mean by all of Israel? I'll tell you sometime. But number six, if you're taking notes, both also, Moses and Jesus, entreat the Lord for their accusers. Or accusers. Both entreat the Lord on behalf of their accusers. Number verse, numbers verse 13, 12 verse 13 says, Moses cried out to the Lord saying, O God, heal her, I pray. And it was exactly, well, very similar words that Jesus on the cross prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Moses, and we talked about this last week, it's amazing. The humility of a man who would pray for and honestly mean it, someone who was just immediately against him. Pray for and ask that they would be immediately healed. He didn't want anything bad to happen to Miriam. Jesus didn't want anything bad to happen to those people who hung him on the cross. To the very people, and we take this, by the way, by extension today. We hear him say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We say, yeah, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. Thank you for forgiveness. But gang, when he spoke those words, listen, he was looking into the eyes of the people who had nailed him up there. He was looking at the Jewish people and the Romans who together have brought about his death. He's looking at them and saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
You want a picture of forgiveness? You want a pattern of forgiveness in your lives? Look at the person who is causing you the most amount of pain in that moment and say, Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. See, that's Jesus. Moses was similar. Both entreated the Lord for their accusers. And this intercession of Jesus, however, had eternal confidence. By the way... Jesus is still our intercessor today. He still cries out for us. Romans 8.34 Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. One last parallel between not Moses and Jesus, but Miriam and the Jewish people. How long was it that Miriam was outside the camp? Seven days. Seven days. The Lord says to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, verse 14, would she not bear her shame for seven days? Let her be shut up for seven days outside the camp, and afterward what happens? She will be received again. And the Bible is very clear about this. In fact, turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. God's plan for Israel includes the same exact thing. That the nation of Israel, Israel as a whole, will be shut away for seven years. In that time, the Bible calls, Jesus calls, the tribulation. You read about it in Revelation 6-19. through We're about halfway through in our study on Sunday nights right now. That they will be plagued. That things will eat at them. And through that time, just like Miriam's leprosy, they will find restoration after the plague, after the leprous attack, after things go horribly wrong for them. Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, hence the Jewish people, the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him. As well. By the way, that's bad English. They'll look on me whom they have pierced and they'll mourn for him. Well, Lord, is it you or is it him? Yes. God, Jesus, they're going to look on me whom they have pierced. Jesus, and they will mourn for him. Jesus, God, God in the flesh, one and the same. And it says, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Skip down to chapter 13, verse 6. And one will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? And he will say those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Jesus speaking about the Jewish people. And going on, verse 9, tells us, God says, I will bring the third part through the fire. Refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. And so Paul can say in Romans 11.25 that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and so all Israel will be saved. These are Paul's words. What's he talking about? He's talking about the people as a whole. See, so there are Jewish people in the world today who are accepting Christ all the time and are immediately saved. Are immediately caught into this whole idea of being Christian because Christ becomes the centerpiece, the focus. But God declares that Israel as a people group will find salvation after they've been cut off for seven days, literally seven years. So, put this all together. Both Moses and Jesus express humbleness. Both are evangelists. 
Both are encouraged by the voice from the cloud. Both envied by older siblings. Both engaged in Gentile marriage. Both entreat the Lord on behalf of their accusers. And now listen. This is the real thing I wanted to talk to you about. I wanted to get to this morning. Moses was a great prophet. He was the greatest that Israel would ever see. But don't miss this. Make no mistake about it. Moses was no Jesus. Moses was no Jesus. For all of his greatness and all of the power and the things that he could perform and the relationship of intimacy that he had with the Father, he was not Jesus. A type, a picture, an illustration of one who would come but who is far greater. You can't even put him in the same category. John says in John 1.17 that the law was given through Moses. However, listen, grace and truth were realized in Jesus Christ. And not in Moses. In fact, would you repeat that after me? The law was given through Moses. Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Amen. Grace. Grace that saves us, not what we do. And truth, absolute truth. Guess what? It's found in no one else. Jesus alone brings truth. Great prophet, yes. Great rabbi, absolutely. Great leader, no doubt. But Jesus was so much more. As a matter of fact, everything in this book, verse to verse, cover to cover, first to last, Genesis to Revelation, is about the person of Jesus Christ. That's why we study the Bible. That's why we're in the Old Testament. Huh? Isn't Jesus talked about in the New Testament? He's talked about in every testament. From cover to cover. And we are searching to see Him and to know Him and understand Him. He is all over this book, for this book is all about Jesus. Jesus said so in John chapter 5, verse 39. He says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about Me. For if you believed Moses, you would believe Me, for He wrote about Me. And one of the things that upset the Jewish people in Jesus' day so much was that he made it all about himself. He went beyond just being a great rabbi. He went to being the issue at hand, to calling people to believe in him. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him, which tells us something about the meaning and purpose of our lives. It's not to find our sense of balance and self-fulfillment. We have been created through him and for him. We exist for the person of Jesus. We live for Jesus' sake and for no other. This book, gang, the Bible, is all about Jesus Christ because life itself, from cover to cover, first to last, is all about Jesus Christ. Now, you and I are going to head home today. We're going to go out to lunch with friends. We're going to do things. We're going to watch TV. We're going to relax, work in the yard, whatever. You need to recognize this. We're going to find ourselves doing what we normally do, busy about life, but life is about Jesus. Life is Jesus. In the transfiguration, both Moses and Elijah are standing there beside him, and God says, gang, listen to my son. It's about him. It's about him. You focus on him. Above all others, I've given him full authority. It is all Jesus Christ. In John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. What are you saying, Jesus? I'm God. I'm God. 
God in the flesh. God among us. John chapter, no, Titus chapter 2 verse 13 and 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 1. Both Paul and Peter said the following. They called Jesus our God and Savior. Our God. Does the Bible really say Jesus is God? Well, Peter and Paul did. Jesus did. John did. 1 John chapter 5 verse 20. He says, We know that the Son of God has come, who has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. Listen, this is the true God and eternal life. Who's the true God? Jesus Christ. Not just a great prophet. Not just a wonderful teacher. Not just a really good guy. But God among us. Rick, I know this. You need to know this. And embrace it absolutely because this gang is the foundation of all Christianity. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. This is the truth. Jesus is God. We need to understand this. Why? I met a Baptist man this week. Wednesday night. This guy was raised up in a Christian home. But he did not know Jesus. I don't know if he ever knew Jesus. I don't know what the situation was. He came to visit Bible study and afterwards began to talk and he was of the Baha'i faith. Baha'i. Saying Baha'i. What's Baha'i? What is that? And by the way, how dare you make a judgment about another person's faith saying that he did not know Jesus. Gang, this gentleman became less and less gentlemanly as our conversation went on. But I'll tell you what really set him off. What really upset him, what really brought out the anger was when I started talking about Jesus. The moment Jesus became the issue, something changed, right Russ? Something was completely different. Aaron was there too. They were sitting over there on the side, you know, just kind of... No. I'm like, jump in any time, guys. <laughs> and we talked and we talked and we talked. And you might say, okay, so Rick, so you're, you're implying here that the Baha'i faith is not a true faith. Absolutely. Why would you do that? Why pick on it? Because, and I want you to hear this very clearly this morning, it does what every false religion on the face of the planet does. It is in that category. Call it a cult, call it paganism. It falls into the category of false religion. How does it do that? You might want to jot this down. Let me give you real quickly three characteristics of false religion. Number one, it marginalizes the Word of God. It marginalizes the Word of God. And this is what was happening in our conversation. It says that the Bible is just simply one of many messages from God. Oh, sure, it's a good message. And there's good stuff to be learned in there, but it's just one of many things. It goes along with the Koran. It goes along with Buddhism and Zoroastrianism and Hinduism and you know, Mormonism. And, 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 you know, and, of course, the scriptures of Baha'u'llah, who is the founder of the Baha'i. Baha'u'llah. I mean, it sounds like it comes out of Hawaii or something. But this guy, Baha'u'llah, came out of Islam in the 1800s. He died in 1892. And he is the founder of the Baha'i religion. It comes directly out of Islam and as a matter of fact ties itself to the Quran and to Islam quite a bit. But saying that Jesus was just one of, and listen to this, he was just one of many manifestations over history. Moses was one of many manifestations. We were talking about Moses on Wednesday night and this guy loved the Bible study, sat there through the whole thing and agreed, yes, Moses was a great man, great manifestation. Came up here and said, yeah, he was a, absolutely was a, a manifestation. 
And Jesus was a manifestation. Muhammad was a manifestation. Buddha was a manifestation, a little larger manifestation maybe than some of the others. But all these guys, over time, God just chooses to kind of reveal himself whenever he wants to in different ways and add to his scriptures. And he brought me this packet of verses of scriptures written by Baha'u'llah. And he says, you know, when you read these, you're just, you're going to see how, I mean, you can't read this without knowing that these must just be, I mean, they're so amazing, they must be from God. And the first thing that came to my head when he said that was, Jesus says, hey, don't pray like the Gentiles thinking that you're going to be heard by your many words. It's not the flowerliness, floweriness of the language. It's not how pretty it is. <laughs> it shows you the truth. It's not, now, when you read the scriptures, don't you find that there are times you're reading along and you go, well, that's not pretty. Why do you put that in there? Well, that's kind of hard to understand. That's... Man. You know, and there are those who, who absolutely love and cling to the King James Version because it has more of that sound to it, the Elizabethan. And it's fine, by the way, the King James is incredibly accurate, so if you use it, praise God, keep using it. But it's not about the sound of the language, it's about what is truth. Jesus brought us what? Grace and truth. Grace and truth are found in Jesus. There is no other word, there's no other gospel, there's no addition. Psalm 138 verse 2, Thou hast magnified thy word above thy name. Listen, this book is so important to the Lord God that he says, My, my word, my word is higher than my name. It's more important than my name. You say, okay, Rick, well, what if there's more to the word than what you have? What if it's more than the Torah, the Old Testament, first five books, and the Law and the Prophets of Jews? And, and what, what if it's more than the New Testament, if his word is magnified? Well, Galatians 1.8, Paul says, Even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel, contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Contrary, that means if a different gospel comes out, something different, something that doesn't jive 100%, an additional thing, it's not from God. There is no additional word of God. Jesus is the word. And Jesus brought the word and we have the complete picture of the word. And I don't have time this morning to get into the validity of the scriptures and why I believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. Why I believe it is as it is, the way God wanted it to be. Part of this, and I'll just say this, and I shared it with, with our friend on Wednesday night. You're telling me that God is incapable of protecting and bringing his word in the form that he wants it to be over all the years? That, that this is so fraught with error, and which, by the way, it's not. That's one of the things that atheists and agnostics and people outside of, of faith in Christ love to say. Oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. It's not. It's not. If you're willing to study it and look at it. It's one of the most perfect, intricate, amazing books. It is the most perfect, amazing, intricate book ever written because it wasn't written by man. Because it was spoke from God. And there is no reason to add to it or take away from it. In fact, at the end of this book, it says the following, Revelation 22:18. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. Those of you studying it right now know what some of those plagues are. He says, if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. And the Baha'i faith, like so many other, again, false religions, claims that there are further revelations. There, there are extra things added, that there's more than just what God has brought in God's word, the Bible. 
It marginalizes the word of God. That's what pagan religions do. That's what false religion does. Number two, it emphasizes the work of man. It emphasizes the work of man. Any false religion that comes at you, and just understanding even these three things, even if you know nothing about the religion that's coming at you, be it Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness or the Baha'i Faith or anything else, as it comes at you, understand, if it's marginalizing God's word and emphasizing the work of man, it is not of the Bible. What do you mean? Listen closely. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 tells us, But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By whose doing? Not by yours. By His doing. Who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. As I'm having this conversation, and we're going back and forth, we're standing right over here, and going back and forth talking about these things, he began to say that it's each person's responsibility to deepen their spirituality, to, to, to gain a stronger foothold, so that when heaven comes, that, that they can make it. Make it? Yeah. Yeah, it's up to every single one of us that says, well, it's by grace that I've been saved, through faith. And this is not of myself, so that no man can boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You have been saved by grace. If you start to get a little haughty about your righteousness, or so self-sure that, man, you've got it together, you're going to fall. And prayerfully, in that moment of falling, you're going to look in the eyes of Jesus and see grace and forgiveness. Talking with someone this week about this, and I love the fact that we can relate to each other as Christians and not be frightened by each other's sins because we've all been saved by grace. I'm no better than anybody else here. You're no better than me. We all sin, we all fall short of the glory of God. But He justifies us freely by grace. Paul says in Galatians 5, it is for freedom that you have been set free. That's what you have to worry your whole life. You know the second, the second guy to rise up in Islam after Muhammad? The second in command. After Muhammad died, he now is in charge of Islam. And he made the statement, and he was called by Muhammad, by the way, the most righteous man ever to live. And Muhammad said, and he has his place absolutely guaranteed in heaven. But you know what he said? On my deathbed, the day of my death, I could die, and for all my righteousness, Allah could, at the last minute, choose to send me to hell. What kind of confidence is that? I have absolute confidence that if I die today, if I fall off the stage and break my neck, and it could happen, if I die today, I will be with the Lord in heaven. Why? Not because I'm a good guy but because I have accepted and believed in His grace. What He did at Calvary, at the cross, paid 100% fully for my sins in a way that I could never do it. And that's the Word of God. But it's marginalized by these other faiths. And it emphasizes the work of man. You've got to work. You've got to work. And look at any cult. That's how you determine a cult, by the way. Does it require you to work your way in? Do you have to keep certain standards or certain laws? Do you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps? If that's the teaching, and I would even go so far as to say this, even in a Christian church, if that's what being, is, is being taught, it is not of the Word of God. Because the Bible teaches grace, and grace alone that saves us. Well, what about all the, you know, growing in our faith and serving and all the other things the Bible calls us to? Absolutely we're called to those things, to grow spiritually, but not so it'll save us. We're already saved. I do what I do because I'm saved. Not because I hope I will be. Number three. Last one. And listen, if there's any wisdom, 
any righteousness, any sanctification or redemption in me, it's because of Jesus' work and not mine, which is why this last defining characteristic of a false religion is so important. It always will diminish the deity of Christ. It took me years, and I was raised in a Christian home, to come to the point where I understood that Jesus was God. Not just Son of God, not just in the Trinity as we talk about, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not just, you know, He's kind of down there on the left. He's across from the Holy Spirit. They're buds, but, you know, God is still above Him. And yet the Bible says that His name is above all names. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. That He is lifted up, that He is God, but the Baha'i faith, along with all the rest, rejects Jesus as God. And we've got to understand that the primary defining characteristic of biblical Christianity is Jesus Christ is our God. He is God who we worship. More so than the Father? No, exactly as is the Father. And by the way, exactly as is the Holy Spirit. He's not down there in the corner going, man, I wish I could be as you know cool as God and Jesus. No, the three in one. One God. Above all. And listen, if we deny the deity of Jesus Christ, that He is God, we are denying the only way for eternal salvation. You've got to understand this. Jesus is God. John says in 2 John chapter 1, verse 7, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not, do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This gentleman, as he was talking with me on Wednesday night, could not accept that. No, God did not come in the flesh. Well, who was Jesus? He was just a manifestation of God. He just had God's Spirit in him, but he was just a man. No, the Bible says... And I'll read it again. Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. And John says this is the deceiver and Antichrist. This will be the message, by the way, of Antichrist, that Jesus is not really God. That he was like Moses, a great man, a great prophet, but not God. We talked and talked and talked. We were here for like an hour and a half on Wednesday night or so. Felt like longer. And uh, as you went back and forth and sharing and speaking and, and everything, it was, it was, if I could pull myself out of the picture and replay it in my mind and see what happened. And I asked Russ and Aaron about this after the fact. What, what I would tell you I saw is what started as a very congenial and gentle conversation began to, on his part... I'm not saying that, that Rick is all together. The, the Spirit was here, <laughs> staking claim from this place. But on this guy's part, he got more and more agitated, and more and more angry. And it was all about me going back to Jesus, who Jesus is. That Jesus is God. And at the height of the conversation, literally the apex, where this guy completely lost it, and all but shouted, the thing that he said as loudly as he could in this barn was, Jesus is not God. And I felt like I had just been blasted by a handful of demons. And I said, au contraire. Jesus Christ is God. And if that's not the truth, gang, then we have no hope. We have no hope. 
Would you turn in your Bibles? We're going to finish here, but the book of Colossians. One last thing I want you to hear. Colossians chapter 2. Gang, Wednesday night. I refuse to let those words go unanswered. And i got to be honest with you, because I have tended in the past to be the kind of guy that even if I have some scriptures in my head and could give some answer, you know what, the idea of hanging out here an extra hour on Wednesday night was not what I wanted to do. You know, American Idol was on. I had reason to get on home, things to do. And yet, in the moment when he started decrying Christian faith, when he started marginalizing things, started watering things down as this universalist approach to, to living, I just, I knew. The Spirit spoke in my heart and said, you need to stake a claim for Jesus. Because he is the deal. And this, this passage, back to all of Colossians 2, if you're struggling with anybody, you don't know how to answer or you're, you're talking with someone and they're just coming at you. And how do I respond to these challenging questions? Listen, I don't know. I didn't know anything about the Baha'i faith on Wednesday night. What I learned, I learned Thursday morning. Got up early and got on the line and then started studying. Figure, oh, so that's, well, that's weird. Well, it's kind of strange. You know, and just right then, it's about, you know, right before I sent out the email to all of you, I learned the things that I shared. And I've learned a little bit more since then. But I didn't know what the Baha'i faith was about. I didn't know how to answer him in those terms. But I do know about Jesus. And Jesus is how you answer. So if you feel yourself being tripped up, maybe someone's knocked on your door and they're trying to bring a false religion to you, talk about Jesus. Bring them back to Jesus over and over. Who do you say that he is? That's what Jesus said. Matthew 16, 15. It's the defining question of Christianity. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? And if he is anything less than God, it's not worth the conversation. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6. Listen to this. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. This is where it begins. This is where the Christian walk starts. If you're not a Christian this morning, it begins by simply saying, I believe in Jesus. I believe He's God. And I want Him to be Lord of my life. And by the way, those simple words, that simple confession, locks you in to eternity with Him. Isn't that amazing? It's called grace. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted, and now being built up in Him, and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, with overflowing, overflowing with gratitude. And listen to this. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, Baha'u'llah, According to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Why? Verse 9, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Any questions? And in Him you have been made complete. And He is the head over all rule and authority. And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead... When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him 
having forgiven us all our transgressions. Not you pulled yourself out of it. Not you cleaned up your act and then came to God. No, when you were dead in your sins, Jesus came in. Verse 14. Having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, praise God, having nailed it to the cross. And when he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, some of the pagan pressures that were on the people in that day. He says, these things are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance, the sum total, belongs to Christ. And so, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, which, by the way, is a teaching of Baha'i, and the worship of angels, a teaching in Jehovah's Witness, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, not holding fast to the head, but from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, Why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to such decrees like do not handle and do not taste and do not touch? This refers to things that are destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. Listen, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. This is what mankind does. We make up stuff to help us feel better. We develop false religions and say, if we can keep these things, we'll create a better world. I'll have a better life. And it might even work for some amount of time. But we're just being deceived. There is no answer in life aside from the answer of Jesus Christ who is the substance of our very lives. Amen. Amen.